Well, good morning again, and welcome again now to those of you, not only who are here in worship, but also those of you who are joining us in the traditional sanctuary and also via broadcast. I'm so glad we're able to be together as a church family learning from God's Word in this way. You may notice there are ushers in the side aisles here who are distributing Bibles. If you'd like to use one during this worship service as we learn from God's Word together, please feel free to take one from them if you would like. I don't know if you know this or not, but today is a Christian holiday. It's a holiday in the Christian year. Today, and here at the end of October, is a day that we call Reformation Day, the last Sunday in October. And we celebrate this day each year as a way to commemorate and to celebrate the work of God, the work of God's Spirit, blowing some fresh wind, some fresh air, some fresh life into his church about 500 years ago in a time of history not coincidentally called the Reformation. And the reason that we celebrated at this time of year here toward the end of October is because it, it was on October 31st, again, almost 500 years ago, that a Christian monk named Martin Luther went up to the doors, the big wood doors of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he tacked some things up on the church door. Because at that time in towns, the church doors was like the big public bulletin board. I'd prefer if you would not emulate this and don't ever nail anything to our glass church doors. That helped a lot around here. But he put these things up there called 95 theses. They were 95 debating points, 95 things he wanted to say. And that's a lot of things, isn't it, by the way, 95? He put 95 things up there that he wanted to sort of debate with the other church leaders of his time that he thought were really important. And God used this time to, to blow some fresh life into the church, and I would say to help recultivate a clearer vision of God's grace in his church on earth than most people were able to see at that time. And this came about, like most historical events, because of a whole variety of causes, right? We never know exactly what causes us to do any one particular thing. It's usually a lot of things. But in this case, probably the most immediate and, and one of the most famous causes was that the church of his day had authorized a fund drive, a, a stewardship drive is a word that we would often use for that. And what, the, what happened in the, in the church of Martin Luther's day was there was a guy in his area who was named John Tetzel, kind of a, a loyal church leader named John Tetzel who went around selling indulgences. What indulgences were is they came about because the church headquarters back in Rome, and it's not necessarily like the Catholic church headquarters because there wasn't a whole lot of, there wasn't like Catholic church, Lutheran church, Methodist church, whatever. There was just the church. And so the church headquarters is back in Rome, and they realized the coffers were running a little dry. They needed a cash flow problem. And so what they did was they authorized the sale of indulgences. And indulgences means like permissions or forgivenesses or something. So they decided to sell services that they thought they could render. What they decided to do was sell indulgences that could get your soul to heaven faster when you die. That's a good deal, right? Would you buy that if that were for sale? <laughs> so they, but not only for yourself, you could buy an indulgence to get also the soul of your already deceased loved ones who were languishing in a place called purgatory that the Bible doesn't really teach about. But they thought that people went to purgatory to purge away any remaining sins before God would let them into heaven. So if you buy an indulgence, you could like shorten that time because you did a good thing for the church. And you could go on to heaven when you, well, when you die or later after you die. And in case you ever thought, man, I don't think the church has ever messed up when it talked about money. Yeah? Some of you have thought that? So it turns out it's possible to do that. And Martin Luther, in response to this, put down what I would call a trail marker, kind of a signpost for himself, for others, for us who would follow to say, there's a dead end down this way. See, that's not how the word of God works. That's not really how the spirit of God works among us. That's not how faith 
and generosity, which is what I think they were aiming for. That's not how faith and generosity and relationship with God really happens. It doesn't happen by means of commandment. It doesn't happen by means of law. It doesn't happen by means of guilt or shame or badgering people. You need to know the difference, Luther said. And I would say this is probably one of the greatest legacies of the Reformation. You need to know the difference between God's law and God's gospel. God's law tells you, tells me, tells us what we are supposed to do. That's important. God's law matters. But God's gospel tells us what God has already done for us in Christ. And those are two very different things. And Luther said, we're getting these all mixed up. And he put down a trail marker that said, this is a dead end to go down this road, not knowing the difference between God's law and God's gospel. So let me tell you about God's gospel. Let me tell you about the good news Luther began to try to educate the church of his time. Let me tell you the good news about God who sent Jesus into the world to save the world and not to condemn the world. Let me tell you the good news about God who sent Jesus into the world to be the way to life and to show us the way to life and to die for us and our sins, to conquer death, to be raised again from the dead, and to invite us to follow him into a new way of life that begins now here in this life and goes on forever. Let me tell you the good news, that God does not love you because of anything you have ever done, but that God loves you in spite of so many things that you have done, in spite of your lack of faith, in spite of your selfishness, in spite of your stinginess, in spite of the terrible decisions you've made that have affected your own life and the lives of others, in spite of those things that embarrass you and infuriate you about yourself, in spite of the fact that you make decision after decision, even though you should know better that you're trying to find life and joy by some other road besides God, yet in the midst of all those things, and I have been on that road, I bet you have too, in spite of all those things and in the face of those things, the gospel is the good news that God has come to us and said, I forgive you. I love you anyway. I have a better life for you. I have eternal life for you. Come, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you. And I think one of the greatest single legacies of that period of church history that we call the Reformation, of these Christians who have followed Jesus before us, one of the greatest trail markers they have left behind for us is to know the difference between God's law, which tells you what to do, and God's gospel, which tells us what God has already done for us. But Martin Luther was not the most important person ever to say, there's a dead end down that way, choose this road instead. Right? We are not ultimately disciples of Martin Luther around here. We are ultimately disciples of Jesus Christ. And it was Jesus who first said, Wide is the gate and broad the road that leads to death, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. And usually, we think of that broad, wide road as the, as the wide road of sin and immorality and greed and just rebellion against God. And we hear Jesus saying, don't do that. Choose the hard, narrow road that follows me. Well, sin and immorality, greed and self, that is one lane on the, on the wide superhighway that leads to death. But another one of those lanes is legalism and guilt. We know that's not the way of Christ either. We know that Jesus had lots of differences with the Pharisees, lots of arguments with the Pharisees who had a very different view of and relationship to God's law from what Jesus had. There are a lot of lanes on that road that distract us from the life and the goodness and the call of Jesus. But the narrow way is a different thing altogether. That way that Jesus invited us to, well, the narrow way is the one who called himself the way, 
who said he was the way, the truth, and the life, and who invited sinners to come to the table with him, and by the power of his grace and his invitation and his call in their lives, turned their lives around and led them on toward life. There's a difference between God's law and God's gospel. And this is a trail marker that's been put down for us by some Christians who have gone before. And I can't help but wonder today if perhaps we might not be able to apply these lessons of law, of God's law and God's gospel to the way that Christians think about, talk about, and handle money as disciples of Jesus Christ. I've always thought that it's kind of an irony that around this time of year, because it's getting toward the end of the calendar year and a lot of churches are setting up budgets and Lutheran churches are setting up budgets and, and we, tend, we tend to do stewardship drives around this time of year. And the, steward, and the Reformation started because of a stewardship drive gone bad. Do you think that's kind of ironic? I think that's kind of funny. But yet I'd like to walk right into that fray, and we're not doing a stewardship drive, there's no pledge cards or anything like that. But I'd like to walk right into that and ask, could we learn from this and apply the understanding of what God's gospel is and what God's law is to the way that we think about and handle money here in our own lives as Christians. So I want to share with you a few things that I think that teaches us and then finish by telling you a story that happened just recently in my life that's really helped make this even clearer for me. The first thing that I think that we can learn about handling money as disciples of Jesus Christ, about managing God's material resources as followers of Christ, is this, that God does not love you because of any money decision you ever made. Now, you may know that one already, but let me say it the other way too. God does not withhold his love from you because of any money decision you ever made. God's love for us is not determined by any condition that is found in us. And I want to share with you my favorite Bible passage that says this. And a lot of times Christians hear about law and gospel and they think, right, law, bad, Old Testament, gospel, good, New Testament. But one of my favorite gospel passages actually comes from the Old Testament. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. It's going to be Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. And if you have one of the quest Bibles that we have here in our worship venues, it's on page 256. This is Moses speaking to the ancient Israelites after God has rescued them from Egypt, rescued them from slavery, and taken them through the, promise, through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And Moses is explaining to them God's attitude, his personality, the character of his relationship with them. And this is what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7 and 8. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God didn't set his affection on you because you were more numerous than all the other peoples. Or he could have said the most powerful or the wealthiest or the really super cool, awesome people in any other way, right? And this is a little bit hard for us to grasp. It's counterintuitive because human love works that way. Human love usually finds something that it thinks is lovable. It finds something that it admires, that it finds inspiring or adorable or good or lovely in some way, and it loves that thing. God's love can't do that. God's love can't go out and look for something that is worthy of its love because it won't find anything. God's love goes out and finds us when we are unlovable, when we are not worthy of God's love. And he loves us anyway and makes us lovely in the process. The Lord did not set his affection on you because of anything in you. But this may sound circular, but this is how God's love works. This passage says the Lord would have set his affection on you. Well, he loves you because he loves you. He loves you because he made a promise that he's going to be faithful to. And so our identity as children of God, as the Israelites found their identity in the, as the children of God, 
is because God made a choice to love us and call us his children. And I think sometimes when we talk about money in the church, there's this, there's this backstory going on in our heads, this little narrative going on that says, you know, it's actually kind of a conditional thing. If you would just give this, if you would just sacrifice that, oh, God would really love you then. He might even love you a little more than the guy down the row who's not getting it like you are. But probably never as much as that woman across the aisle over there who's way ahead of you. But that's not how it works with God's love. We've got to not make a mistake between God's law, which tells us what to do, and God's gospel that tells us what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. If you don't learn any other lesson from today, learn this most important lesson that you can know in your relationship with God. No matter where you're going, no matter what the context, the most important thing we can know about our relationship with God is that it exists because God has chosen to love us and it is not conditioned on us in any way. Now, the second lesson that I think we'll learn if we start to think about how we handle money as disciples of Jesus Christ from the perspective of the difference between God's law and God's gospel is this. Being a faithful steward of God's money is not all about giving. It's not all about what you put in the plate or the basket or whatever it is that comes by you in front of worship. And I think sometimes churches make this mistake when we talk about stewardship of God's resources. Maybe I have made this mistake from time to time and given the wrong impression. I have to own that if that's the case. But I think when we, when we think about this in the perspective of God's gospel, as gospel-grounded people, we'll see it a little differently. And one of the things that has made this the most clear to me actually comes from one of those 95 theses that Luther tacked up on that door in Wittenberg almost 500 years ago. And I only know one of them, by the way. I haven't memorized all 95. But this is what one of them says. The very first one says this. When our Lord Jesus Christ said repent, he meant for the whole life of the believer to be one of repentance. Now the reason that he had to put that up there on the door and put it first is because other church leaders of his day thought of and taught about repentance as individual good things you would do with, to, and for the church. And so they would say that repentance means saying this prayer or lighting this candle or performing this ritual or giving this gift or purchasing this indulgence. And Luther said, it may or may not be what God wants from you, but, but what God really wants is your life. God wants your whole life. His decision to call you his child does not depend on you getting that right, but what he wants from you is not this little thing here or there. He wants all of your life to be oriented in his love and toward his way. Right? Sometimes I think we mix that up when we begin to think about these individual acts of repentance here or there or individual acts that we do only in the church. We think of our relationship with God as a church thing. So I was thinking of this, thinking about this, and what I brought along with me here in my pocket is actually just a printout of the last six weeks of transactions from uh, the main electronic checking account out of which Amy and I operate most of our life. And there, there are a couple lines on here because of where this falls in the month. There are two lines right here, one of which is the, is the transaction that I've set up between First Lutheran's bank account and ours, where we give our monthly tithe, 10% of, of our income to support the work that God's called us to here. And, and right below that one, right over here, this is the offering that we give to our uh, debt elimination campaign that's ongoing right now, trying to pay off the last little bit of the mortgage that, that put together this building that we do so much ministry in. And those are things that we've prayed about as a family, as Amy and I, things that we believe that God wants us to do with our resources. But a little bit above that are a couple of, I'm sorry, a little bit below that is a, is a line where a different bank is taking money out of my account. And that is the bank that, to which my mortgage was recently sold, the mortgage on the house that we live in. 
And I don't think that God cares one little bit less about this line than he did about those other lines. I think that line is sacred too. And as a matter of fact, we prayed about that line too, and we thought about that when we were buying our house, or when we were deciding where to live and what kind of house we should live in. And then right above that are a couple lines that I highlighted in green, and those are the withdrawals that I made a few weeks back of some cash that Amy and I use for the groceries and clothes and all the daily living expenses that go along with managing a family. And some of you who've been through Financial Peace University, you can tell we, we drank the Kool-Aid because we're using the cash for that kind of system there. But I think God cares about that too. Because one of the things that God wants us to do with our money is to provide for our needs. Of, if you have children or a spouse to take care of that whole household that you're a part of, God cares very much about that. And when you know the gospel, that you are a child of God, then you are not a child of God only when you come here and the plate goes in front of you. But rather you are a child of God everywhere you go, everything you do, every financial transaction you authorize or execute is done by a person who is a child of God. So I think we need to stop thinking about tacking on something to our life of stewardship, but rather every bit of God's resources that we manage is managed out of our everyday, everywhere we go identity as a child of God. And there are values that guide those decisions. Now, the, the second thing I think that will happen in our thinking and our acting about the way that we manage God's resources is that we will start to realize that faithful and generous stewardship of God's resources is actually a part of salvation in our lives, not a response to salvation that we are obligated to give. Let me try to say what I mean by that. I think sometimes well-meaning Christians with good intentions let guilt slip back in to the way that we think about our generosity. We say things like, Jesus gave everything for me. I better give whatever I can for him. And if that's driven by love, if that's like, man, Jesus gave everything for me. I love him. I love Jesus' vision for the world. I want to be a part of that. That's beautiful. That's a good thing. Sometimes I think it's more of a guilt-driven thing. Oh, Jesus gave so much for me, I better figure out what I can pony up and give for him. Right? And we experience it like it's kind of the fine print on our contract with God. The big print giveth, the small print taketh away. Right? And so the big print gave us our, gaveth us our salvation, and that's a good deal, we want that. But then like the gotcha on the back end of the deal is, well, now you've got to give something, and now you've got to obey. But the problem with that kind of thinking is that it, it exposes kind of a, a bad assumption in our minds. And that is that real joy and freedom would come if I could just use all my time and all my wealth to serve my own ends. Then I would finally be happy. But I guess I'll sacrifice some of my happiness now and I'll just I'll be like a God person so I can go to heaven when I die. Right? But that's, that's not how it works. I have seen in my own life and in the lives of others what happens when we use our resources to serve our own ends instead of serving God. And I would not usually call that freedom. Sometimes I have seen that become the worst kind of bondage. And so I just want to show you one more Bible verse here. And it's one that actually is in our community group discussion guides for this week. So those of you in community groups and using the study guides will read this later. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's, verses, uh, it's 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. And it's on, in the Quest Bibles on page 1696. The context here is that the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in Corinth to invite them to participate in an offering that he is collecting and giving to a different church that's under a famine and a very hard time back in Jerusalem. So he's encouraging the church in Corinth to be generous. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. 
But that's not a guilt trip. That's not like, oh, see what Jesus did? You better do your own small little part and try to pay him back. We know from the rest of the chapter that Paul's saying, I'm not commanding you to do this. But rather, he's inviting them to participate in the way of life that they have learned in Jesus Christ. He could have said to them, you have learned to trust Christ. You have learned to find life in Christ. And so now, notice the pattern of the life of Christ who shows us that freedom and joy and fullness of life is not found by trying to hoard as much of your life as you can unto yourself, but by pouring it out and laying it down for others. So I invite you into the goodness of the saved life now, not into a bummer of an obligation that you have to pay back to God for the salvation you hope to get someday. When we know the difference between God's law and God's gospel, it really changes our orientation toward everything money included. Now, I want to finish today by sharing with you an experience that I had just this last weekend. And it's really not an experience that has to do specifically with finances or money at all. It's an experience that has to do with love and relationships, which is where all this starts in the first place. And it's an experience that I had with my kids. Now, now I love my children because they are my children, right? I don't love them because of anything in particular they've done. Parents, can I get an amen, right? We don't always love them because of what they do, right? In fact, I love them in spite of the things they do very often. But I love them because they are my children. And furthermore, I want them to know this, right? I want them to be secure in their father's love. So I, was tell I had the opportunity, let's call it this last week, to correct one of their behaviors. We have these opportunities quite often, right? So I had the opportunity to correct one of their behaviors. And I, I started this way. I said, I still love you, but this behavior is not making me very happy right now. But before I got to the end of that sentence, I was being cut off, which normally not a good idea, right? But before the end of that sentence, my child interrupts me and says to me in a potent way, of course you still love me. Right? I'm like, okay, all right. Don't usually interrupt me, all right? <laughs> However, that is a conviction that I want them to develop, right? I want their little growing minds to, to be able to say to themselves, I never, ever, ever have to doubt my father's love for me. I want them to know that, right? Parents in the room, you, you know what I'm talking about here, right? I think most of us also know that those are the conditions in which they are set free to love us in return and also to love other people in free and healthy ways. They are able to love well because we have first loved them as the Bible also says about our relationship with God, that we love because he first loved us, right? And children want to please their parents. They want to hear their parents say, good job. You did good. I'm proud of you. Well done, son. Well done, daughter. And kids want that from their parents, even when their parents' love has been insecure and withheld from them. It just gets to be a painful and hard experience when that's the case, right? Same thing happens in our relationship as children of God. We want to please God. We want to hear God say to us regarding the years of our life and the resources of our life and the relationships of our life, you did good. You did a good job with that. Well done, good and faithful servant. We want to hear that verdict of God over our lives now and over the future totality of our lives someday. Not because it made us as children. That never would have happened. That happened by the gracious decision of God in Jesus Christ. But because we want to do a good job. But sometimes that comes in our lives from a place of brokenness. Sometimes that comes from a place of fear or shame or guilt. And when that happens, dead end road. 
right? Because that is an insatiable drive. It will never be satisfied. We will be on the hamster wheel of trying to earn God's love, and it will never happen for us. And when we find ourselves in that place, what we do not need to hear is try a little harder, spin the hamster wheel faster, I promise you'll get there someday. We don't need to hear the lie that, ah, that's pretty good, that's good enough, God will take that. What we need to hear is the good news that God loves you anyway. That God has made a decision to call you his child unconditionally, not conditioned because of anything in your life, but because of his decision in Jesus Christ to make you a co-heir with Christ, brother and sister of Christ, child of God. We need the gospel to put us back on a different road. But if we find ourselves instead or after that in a place where we just we want, we want God's approval because we love God, because he has first loved us, then we find ourselves on the road that every child's heart knows is a wonderful road that leads to freedom and joy. But those are two different situations, aren't they? So let me ask you just to think for a moment What is God's word saying to you today? Are you at a place where what you need to know is you need to know that God loves you anyway? Are you at a place where you need to be reminded and reassured that you are indeed a child of God in spite of yourself? Maybe as we've talked about money in a church context today, you're taken back to a place where your handling of money, that brings up feelings of shame for you. Feelings of guilt, embarrassment, pain, or brokenness. Now, there may be lessons to be learned from those experiences so you do something different in the future, but the most important thing that you need to know today is that while we were still sinners, and while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for you and reconciled you to God. And God made a decision in Christ to call you his child, and nobody and no thing will ever snatch you out of his hand. That is where your identity is found. And that may be the most important money lesson that some of us will learn here today. Maybe some of you are in a place where you're thinking, you know, I I would like to do some things differently. God is convicting you that you are not the owner of all your resources. You didn't bring them into the world. You won't be taking them back out. You are managing God's resources for his will. Maybe for some of you, God's word is convicting you today that every transaction, every decision I make, I make as a child of God, they're all sacred. And maybe I want to start making some of them a little bit differently, whether that pertains to spending or saving or earning or giving decisions or maybe all those things together. But you know that God loves you and you love God and you want to hear God say over your decisions, you did good with that. Well done. But you know that there are some things that could be a lot more well done than they really are. And you're motivated by God's spirit to change those things. What's God's word saying to you this morning? I can tell you that there is a dead-end road, that there is a dead-end down the road of sin and greed and self. And I can tell you that there is a dead-end down the road of legalism and guilt and fear. But I'm really here to tell you that there is life and freedom and joy down the way of grace and obedience in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus calls us to choose life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you have made us your children, and we worship you. We are grateful for your grace, for we know ourselves, and we know how far we have wandered from you. And God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would wash into our lives and reassure us of our core identity as your child, no matter where we have been, no matter what we have done. 
And I pray, God, that you would set us free by your good news, by your gospel, by your spirit, by the free gift in Jesus Christ. Set us free and set our hearts light to want to please you and serve you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.